On Tuesday afternoon, I got a phone call from Pastor Mike, and he asked me if I wanted to preach today. And I was very excited, and of course I said, yes. So, here we are. I would like to pray before we start with the sermon. Dear Father, we thank you so much that you are our Father, no matter what nationality we might be. You are our common Father, and we belong to a common family. And we thank you so much for your word, that it is a living word that speaks directly into our lives, that it is helpful and worthwhile to live after. And Father, we ask you now that you would speak to all of our hearts, that you would touch us with your word, that you would show us how you would like us to live, and that you show us who we are as children of yours. Amen. One out of every 200 Austrians has heard the gospel and put his trust in Jesus. That leaves 199 out of 200 who do not know the living God. In our day-to-day lives in Austria, we are surrounded by unsaved people. Our landlords, our eight neighbors, our car mechanic, our doctors, our mailmen, and so on. They're currently all unsaved people. And I don't think that the situation is much different here in the United States. Sure, the statistics are better, and there are many more people who believe in Jesus. But you also are surrounded by unsaved people. I think this truth really hits home when someone we love rejects the gospel. Maybe you have a father who mocks your faith. Or a mother who puts up an impenetrable brick wall every time you start to talk about Jesus. Or a son who does not embrace the Christian, Christian faith. Or a daughter who on purpose stays as far away from God as possible. Or a dear old friend who has repeatedly declined to talk with you about what is most precious to you, Jesus. Do you have a list of people, either written or unwritten, whose salvation you desire deeply? One thing is certain, we cannot save anyone, but we can make ourselves available to God so that he can use us in the salvation of others. But how exactly does God use us in the salvation of others? In which ways does God employ us to bring the knowledge of Jesus Christ to those who don't know him yet? A truthful and trustworthy answer is vital to believers all around the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples how God will use them in the salvation of others. If you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. You can also see this Bible passage on the screen, and I will read it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. You are... 
the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. These words of Jesus come right after the Beatitudes and are directed to his closest followers. Jesus' words are not applicable for everyone, but only pertain to those men and women who have decided to follow Jesus, no matter the cost. If you have decided to follow Jesus, these words were spoken for you. You are the light of the world. The first thing we notice here is that Jesus says, You are the light. He doesn't say, you should be the light, or give your best to be the light. As Christians, being the light is our identity. It is not a task that we need to accomplish. It is who we are. It is not something we need to work hard to, to be. We are the light. And those who follow Jesus will, by design, be light bearers in a dark world. Certainly, this group of Jewish men and women were taken aback when they heard that they were to be the light of the world. Their presence as light carriers was to be large-scale, all-encompassing, even global. Evidently, the world was a dark place, and it would not be enough for their light to shine as far as Jerusalem, but it should shine even farther to Ephesus, to Corinth, to Rome, and even to the ends of the earth. After Jesus establishes their identity as the light of the world, he gives them two examples that stress high visibility. First, like a city on a hill, they were to be easily noticeable, even from a great distance. Shortly after we moved to Innsbruck, I was out late at night, and suddenly I saw a light in the sky far above me. First, I could not figure out what it was. But then I realized that what I saw was a brightly lit skiing lift station on top of the mountain, about 5,000 feet above me. You simply couldn't miss it. It was a lit-up house in the dark sky. In the same way, we are to be an easily noticeable Christian witness. We are not to hide our faith like a village in a nestled valley might be hidden. But we should be like a city on a hill by displaying our faith so it can be perceived clearly. The second example of Jesus refers to a common household practice at the time. Each evening, as the sun went down, people would light oil lamps in their homes. A typical house, then, would only have one room, so one lamp would light up the entire house. And since oil was not cheap, nobody wasted the light by putting it under a bowl. The thought alone would have been absurd. Instead, the lamp 
was placed in a strategically favorable position that allowed the lamp to light up the entire house. Jesus' point here is crystal clear. He wants us to be visible. Believers must not conceal the truth of who they are. We are not to hide our identity as followers of Jesus because that would cover up the light. Instead, we are to intentionally position ourselves so that people are bound to see Jesus. I do not know a more strategic place to be a witness for Jesus than in and to our families. In Tirol, which is the Austrian province we live in, we have many alpine valleys where the people are staunch Catholics. To be Austrian there is to be Catholic. Usually if someone professes faith in Christ in one of these valleys, it is a large embarrassment to the family before the society. That's how it was when Helga became a believer 20 years ago. Her father mocked her for her newfound faith. Her mother was ashamed of her. But she shared her faith. And within one year, two of her four siblings had become believers as well. This spring, 20 years after she became a believer, their father, who had mocked them for their faith for two decades, asked Christ to forgive his sins on his deathbed. Now we're praying for the mother, for the remaining siblings, for the children, for the husbands, to become believers as well. We're excited because we see that God is at work in this family through some highly visible witnesses. In verse 16, Jesus tells his followers what their lives as light bearers will have as a result. If they will let their light shine before men, people will see their good deeds and they will praise God in heaven. But what are these good deeds? I believe that both words and actions are meant here. Nevertheless, I think that the primary meaning is to be found in deeds of compassion. When our second daughter, Miriam, was born last January, the church provided meals for us for a whole month. This extravagant expression of love was just about too much, just about blew away Julie's non-Christian friend, Elisabetta. She couldn't believe what love and acts of service our friends from church were showing to us. It was a bright light of compassion in the Christian family. And Elisabetta saw it clearly. She will have a baby this July. And maybe we can cook meals for her too. And she will see the light even better. When my mother became a believer 35 years ago, through missionaries from Oregon, she was shunned by her parents for having joined what they thought was a cult. But during the last few years of my grandpa's life, as he weakened more and more and was finally bed 
ridden. She took care of him selflessly. Her compassion was a shining light that attempted to penetrate the darkness of his heart. Grandpa died in 2003, and we do not know if he asked God for forgiveness. So how does God use us in the salvation of others? God uses us as visible and compassionate light bearers in the salvation of others. But here I need to be honest. As good as this sounds, somehow personally, I have trouble putting it into practice. Something clearly is missing. For one, I am quite often by choice not a visible light. It takes a lot of boldness to mention God, let alone Jesus, in a conversation. Sometimes I'm outright afraid of a high Christian visibility. Then again, I see people who are in distress, but I feel indifferent toward them. Why should I help them? I am tired, exhausted. My week was tough, and I need some downtime. Oh God, please send someone else. Send someone who has compassion. And last but not least, I am sometimes fully unaware of my identity as the light of the world. Maybe, just maybe, I am not alone in this. Maybe you too sometimes avoid visibility, lack compassion, and forget your identity as the light. Let me remind us what enables us to be the light God wants us to be. I will do so with the help of a well-known Minnesotan landmark, Split Rock Lighthouse. Split Rock Lighthouse was built with the sole purpose of saving lives. It was designed to be a light in the darkness. Here you can see the tower and at the top level of the tower, the lens that cast the light. Let me tell you a little bit about that lens. In its center was a 1,000 watt electric light bulb that served as the light source. The lens surrounded the bulb like a big clamshell. It was manufactured in France and consisted of 200 and 42 separate prisms, which serve to focus and thereby maximize the light. During storms or foggy weather or at night, the lens rotated around the light bulb in the center, focusing the light and giving off a flashing white beam every 10 seconds that could be seen as far as 22 miles. Split Rock Lighthouse, serving as a remarkable illustration, has helped me to better understand what part God wants me to play in the salvation of others. 
Just as the lighthouse only has one light, the 1,000 watt light bulb. So there is only one powerful light in the darkness of our world. The Son of God, Jesus Christ. At the beginning of his gospel, Matthew aptly says of Jesus, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You and I, we need to realize and subscribe to the fact that we do not have any light of our own, but that Jesus is the light in us. We are like those little prisms of the lens. We transmit the light that falls upon us. A prism has no light of its own, but it receives light and sends it on. When the lens was built in Paris, the manufacturers went to great length to ensure that each single prism was perfectly aligned to the light source so that the lens would send off one focused beam. Let me ask you, to what degree are you aligned to Jesus? When God's children align to Jesus, there is a short-term and a long-term effect. Five years ago, Julie came back to Minnesota during Christmas break for a wedding while I stayed in Austria with my parents. One afternoon, my parents had friends over who were unbelievers. I didn't join them at first, but stayed in my room and had devotions. Reading the Bible that day, God's love became so real to me, I could hardly stand it. I then joined the company downstairs, and I talked with the husband for a while, when his wife suddenly said to me, You're somehow different. You look so happy. Wow. It doesn't happen often, though. That was a short-term effect of being aligned to Jesus. At Mount Sinai, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. And Moses was left with a shining, radiant face. You cannot truly be in the company of God Almighty and have it go unnoticed. The long-term effect is just as amazing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, We all, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we continually align ourselves to Jesus, the Spirit transforms us into His likeness. We become Christ-like. I'm sure that you have met or maybe even lived with someone who has come a long way on this journey of Christ-likeness. And I hope that you are well underway and not delayed on your own journey. This morning, 
Jesus invites you and me to become more perfectly aligned to him. First, for your own sake. He wants to revive your soul. After all, it does us a lot of good to sit in the sun. Secondly, for the sake of others. Through you, Jesus wants to shine his light into dark hearts. And lastly, for the sake of his own glory. So that more and more people, both in Minnesota and Austria, may see and know and worship Jesus. So how does God use you in the salvation of others? As you align to Jesus, he uses you as a visible and compassionate light bearer in the salvation of others. Light draws people. But not all that are drawn to the light receive the light. Jesus' words are no magic formula for highly effective evangelism. But they show us and tell us that it is much more important who we are than what methods we employ. We are the light of the world. So let's be visible. Let's be compassionate. Let's be aligned. And let us shine. Amen.